Galatians 2, 15 through 18. Our, our focus this morning will be on 17 and 18, but I believe there is the connection from 15 to 16. So, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Let us pray. Father, I ask for help, that you would help us to understand these words, help us to meditate upon these things, to see if they are so, and to understand more of what it means to be justified by faith in Christ that you would give us a heart for these things to, to study and to learn, not for the knowledge of our head, but for knowledge that we put into practice and action for your glory and honor, to be able to explain these things, to encourage one another by them, to build up your church. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Even before the crucifixion of Christ, there has been objections to the gospel, as we read in the gospels themselves. And ever since the resurrection and ascension of Christ, there have been objections to the gospel, of which we have one objection in our passage this morning. Paul essentially gives four answers or four responses to that objection in 18 through 21. And there are some commentators who just take those in rapid fire uh, because Paul does them in rapid fire succession to explain the entire answer, Paul's answer to the objection. But I... Uh, I guess I would ask us, for not only my sake but yours, that we would take these as bite-sized responses and we'll take the first response in 17 and 18 this morning. That we, uh, the image that came to my mind was an old Far Side cartoon by Gary Larson. Some of you remember him uh, in his cartoons, how he uh, gave animals human characteristics, but one of the images in my mind was of the, there were six or eight dogs in a life raft on the ocean, and in the middle of the life raft was a big box that said, emergency dog biscuits. And in the background, the ship has not even sunk underneath the waves. It was still going down when one of the dogs raises his, his paw and says, who votes we eat the biscuits? <laughs> That was what the passage was like to me. A dog never 
grazes, do they? They eat everything that's in the bowl all at once. And it's hard for me to digest that way, so I would ask us this morning, no offense, but that you would be, I think, closer to the scriptures, that you would be a cow. That we would have a chance over the next three or four Sundays to ruminate on these things, to meditate on these passages uh, that Paul gives us, and that we would slow down his rapid-fire response here. Again, the passion of the apostle, I think, comes through all the way through Galatians. But in, nevertheless, in verses 15 through 18, I believe there is the setting up of the objection. And it is an objection that is still heard in Christian churches today particularly, I would think, by the Roman church, the Church of Rome, as we heard something about that in Sunday school this morning. I believe, and not all commentators will, that the but if of verse 17 does relate directly to verses 15 and 16, and I will admit that 17 and 18 are very difficult verses for me to, to parse out, to understand. When did this take place? When, when was he seeking to be justified? When did he, or what did he destroy that he's now trying to rebuild? And was it Paul or was it Peter? He's, is he still speaking to Peter or is he now in full explanation mode? And so these things perhaps are not uh, in the way of us understanding the passage, but things that I felt I had to deal with in order to understand and then explain. And so what I will do is I will go back to verses 15 and 16 to set up what I believe is coming in the objection and then handle the objection itself. And then we'll see, well, what does it mean for us? In verses 15 and 16, it's kind of the then. We are by nature, as he says to, to Peter. I believe it's a direct quote. We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We were Jews who had the law and the traditions and the ceremonies. And we came to discover that no man is justified by works of law whether they be works prescribed by the law or works done in obedience to that law, he's saying no man is justified by works of the law. And we were seeking justification in Christ. We were, he, he wasn't trying to come to Christ by himself by this word seeking, but he is seeking to understand and to live out what it means that other great bookend that we have in Galatians 2 in this section, the bookend that has justification by faith, and then the author Jerry Bridges says in his book called The Two Bookends of the Christian Life, Union with Christ. And so he introduces that here, but that's coming in 19 and 20. So we're going to put that response aside, but he is in that process. He is living in full trust and faith in Christ. 
And he says, we, we came to understand these things, and then we acknowledge that we find ourselves sinners just like the Gentiles. In other words, God in Christ has informed us that our status, our ethnicity, our religion of Judaism is nothing in terms of justification, that it's, we are placed in that same level as the Gentiles, verse 16, that by no means of the flesh, no works of law, shall any flesh be justified. And we came to understand that, yeah, we're sinners just like them. They didn't have the law. They didn't have the ceremonies. They didn't have even the knowledge of the law that we have. And so that advantage that we thought we had was, was as nothing because we understood that we were sinners just like them. But we left those works of law and believed in Christ for justification. We did not put our trust in the works of the law, but in Christ. And then we came to live with Gentiles. We sat at table with Gentiles, and we proclaimed to them what we had come to know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe that's how 15 and 16 sets us up. But in verse 17, he says, But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, while we were in this <coughs> process, while we were working this out, as we began to proclaim Christ and justification and by faith in Him and Him alone, if in this process we were mistaken and our purpose was not attained, we were not declared righteous before God. He says, we ourselves have also been found to be, and I would say, nothing but sinners. If we found ourselves to be sinners just like the Gentiles, and yet we are not thereby justified before God, what good is Christ? What good is he to us? Is he only then someone who ministers to us? And the word is the same word we use in the New Testament for deacon, servant. Has he become a servant to us of sin? Is that all he means to us? If after realizing that we're but sinners, we now go back to works of the law as a means of justification. We find ourselves as just sinners, so we go back. Must we not say that Christ ministered nothing to us but sin? If Christ requires Jewish Christians to abandon the law, the Torah, as authoritative for their conduct, is he simply serving, he, Christ, simply serving or leading them to commit sin? And of course we hear Paul cry as he does in Romans chapter 6. May it never be. God forbid. Absolutely not. But I think, if you think about it, and I hope you have thought about this before, that I 
think that it is an obvious objection. I believe it is totally logical. In essence, what Paul, I think, heard, and I think probably all of us have heard from non-Christians at some point is, wait, 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 what are you telling me? You're telling me that you don't do anything to be saved. That it is free grace given freely by Christ to you. You don't do anything for it. And we would say, yes, we believe that the gospel, the scriptures declare to us that the gospel is about what Christ has done for us. He saves us from our sins. Or to use the words in Galatians chapter 1, he gave himself for our sins. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age. And so the objection, I believe, logically comes from rational thinkers. Doesn't that mean if you were a sinner, Christ has saved you by his work alone and not yours, that you are free to do and act just as you want? You were a sinner. Jesus saved you. Doesn't that make Christ a minister of sin? If keeping the law does not contribute to justification, then why keep the law? Won't the law be useless to Christians? And Christians can do as they wish, and Christ becomes a servant, a minister of sin. Again, we hear Paul asking that same question, I believe, in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might abound? And again, he gives the same answer, may it never be. God forbid. And it is blasphemous to assert of Christ, of Christ, the perfect God-man, the champion of Hebrews, as we read, the one who gave himself for our salvation, who came to save us from our sin, that he would be a servant of sin. It's an absurdity that I believe not even the agitators in Galatia, Galatia would have believed. They, they would not have posited that as an option. They would have said, this is inconceivable of Christ, that he would be a minister of sin. And it is logical because if you've never thought about that, how can this really be? That grace can really be free. In economics, they have an acronym Tanstoffel. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. And that's how we as humans think. There can't be such a thing as free grace. And if Christ has saved you, then he must have somehow become a minister of sin to, to promote sin even in his people. And Paul says, may it never be. God forbid that this could be. And it's as we seek the scriptures, as we search them, we find out about what sin really is. 
And in my reading, I was told that Jonathan Edwards coined the phrase, the sinfulness of sin. Jonathan Edwards wrote in the early 1700s, and he does use that phrase, the sinfulness of sin, but I found that Edward Reynolds, who was a preacher before him in the early 16, mid-1600s perhaps, uh, uses that. He actually wrote a book called The Sinfulness of Sin. And I'll just read you one sentence uh, from it, but he, he really, I think, helps us understand that what we're talking about here is not a ceremony. We're, we're not talking about the issue of circumcision or table fellowship, even though that's the context of Paul's rebuke of Peter. It goes deeper. What is justification? What is sanctification? What is my salvation all about? But we have to, I think, look at this concept of the sinfulness of sin. And Reynolds writes this. Three hateful evils are in sin. Aberration from God's image, obnoxiousness to his wrath, and rejection from his presence. And he labels those the stain and the guilt and the misery of sin. And so we, we, we don't take that little trite thing that sin is just missing the mark. He, he takes us to that sinfulness of sin to realize we're talking about something serious here. We're not arguing about the semantics of the word work or law. We're arguing or they're objecting to the fact that is Christ a minister of sin. Does the Christian life mean we have a license to do exactly as we wish without regard for a holy God? And Paul's answer to this, to prove that free grace is not that license to sin, says in verse 18, if I, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Part of the issue here that kind of jolts you is that he's been saying we, and as if he's talking to Peter and those who were gathered together in the presence of all, as he says, and now he says I. And I believe like some that in its basic form, I think Paul is softening his rebuke of Peter by slipping into this autobiographical mode. Peter was guilty of doing, verse 18. He was rebuilding what he once destroyed. And he is a transgressor. He is a violator of the law. But Paul uses the first person, again, I think, to establish the principle. He's not just saying, you know, it's Peter. What he's saying is, this can be you. This can be me. If I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself. I show myself to be a transgressor. Not that I may be, but I would be. And what did Peter do? But he withdrew. We've already seen that. He withdrew from the Gentiles. He had been eating with them. He had been having that table fellowship, that, that fellowship in Christ with them. And it says, for fear of the circumcision party, earlier in chapter 2, he withdrew, and, and he became aloof, and, and he became secretive. He was beginning to rebuild, by that action, what he had once destroyed. The phrase is, 
if I rebuild what I have once restored? In some versions, which things I have once destroyed? And what are those things? Well, as you might imagine, the commentators are divided. And again, I may be wrong. But what I see here is that he is, was focusing on which things of the law that segregate the Jews, the Jewish Christians, that is, and the Gentiles. That barrier between them, as Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2. That he has broken down that barrier in his relationship. Whether works of the law, again, mean the prescription of the law or the doing the law, I don't think matters here. Because what he has done is he has gone down a path that he believes in his justification in Christ. This is what Christ has taught him, and now he's withdrawn from that. He destroyed something. He destroyed his racism. He destroyed his thinking that you can work the law to become right with God. He has destroyed that which kept him from having fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's withdrawn from that, and he's going now to rebuild what he destroyed. He's saying, in effect, what I did was wrong. I'm now finding that that's not how you're justified, or that's not an action of a justified person. What you really need to do is go back and follow the law, and do these works, and follow these prescriptions and he forgot, or at least Paul had not written this yet in Ephesians chapter 2, that it was Christ, he says, who broke down the, the barrier of the dividing wall between the Jew and the Gentile. And what is Paul's principle? I believe it might be stated like this. I built my ministry on what Christ taught me in the gospel. That's chapter 1 of Galatians. It was Christ who gave me the gospel. It was Christ who, who transmitted that gospel to me and taught me. And in my life before that, my life as a Pharisee, I had confidence, all confidence in the flesh. He even goes in far in Philippians and saying, as far as keeping the prescriptions of the law, blameless would be my inscription. But then Christ invaded and everything changed. Christ revealed true righteousness to me, I think he would say. Christ revealed to me what we see in verse 16, that no, by no works of the law can any man be justified before God. But now he's saying, I spent the last 14 plus years, depending on how you read early chapter 2 in Galatians, 14 to 17 years, destroying any notion that right standing with God can in any way come by what a man does or by what a man is by birth, his ethnicity or his religion. I destroyed salvation by works. I destroyed that works of the law that kept me from having relationships with other Christians, having that fellowship, having that participation together in Christ. 
and I do not, or I understand that I cannot be right before God by doing those works. And so I destroy them as being for me and others who I would preach to as a path to reconciliation with God. But now, now if I reverse myself, if I step back from that, if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I show myself I'm a violator of that very law that I'm going back to. The law, we have to understand, was given because of sin, not to save us from sin. We need it precisely because we are sinners. The law is a guide. The law is a restraint for sin. And because we are sinners by nature, lawless people, the law is needed. But the law, as I say, cannot save. It cannot save us from the power of sin. It cannot save us from the guilt of sin. It cannot cleanse us. It can't make us clean before God. It can show us our sin. It can shine a bright light on that and say, this is what you are like, but it cannot save you from that. So, therefore, I think Paul can say, I violate the law. I become a transgressor of the law by trying to make the law do something it was not given by God to do. And that's why I think he can label himself, I'm a transgressor. I'm a sinner of that very law because I'm trying to make it save people. I'm trying to make it now. I, I destroyed any notion that it could and now I'm rebuilding it again. And now I'm teaching people by my influence, by them watching me, by the Gentiles saying, wait a minute, Paul is going back and he's now saying, whoop, he made a mistake. That Christ, all that Christ did was show them that he was a sinner. Christ is a minister of sin. I need to go back and keep that law in order to be right before God. Now, as I say, the objection continues to this day. And there are those who would call the gospel of free grace in Christ a legal fiction. What is a legal fiction? Well, something is asserted as a fact that is probably or possibly false in order to achieve a particular goal. A couple of examples. In a transaction, when my dad sold me his truck, his little pickup truck, several years ago, he wrote in the handwritten bill of sale for the sum of one dollar and other considerations. And people would say, well, that's a legal fiction because he technically sold you the car, but money never exchanged hands. At least I don't remember giving my dad a dollar. And the DMV didn't ask me what were the other considerations. I think knowing my dad, the considerations were probably please take care of it and enjoy it. 
And my considerations would have been, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and the DMV didn't even bother to collect the six and a half cents sales tax. Another one, perhaps a little more forensic, adoption. In adoption, in most places, it's my understanding that the birth parents are required to write an affidavit, sign an affidavit that says that the child they are putting up for adoption is a stranger to them. And that's the word that's used. And yet, legally, that child is someone else's, but in truth, in reality, that child has a birth mother who may know them, or in marriage. And I imagine with the immigration laws and things changing, we're going to see more and more of this. But there are those who marry for the purposes of immigrating to this country. Legally, they are pronounced man and wife but they have no intention of living together, consummating that marriage, and staying together till death do them part. It is a legal arrangement, but it is a fiction, because it is on paper relation, but it is not a marriage before God. That's a legal fiction, and there are those who would accuse us of buying into a legal fiction. Those who claim that justification by faith declares a man, woman, child righteous before God is a legal fiction. Because there is that declaration legally when in reality you're just nothing but a poor rotten sinner. There is no change to your character. It was a pronouncement but it is not a reality. They say the doctrine makes a person legally righteous, but no change of character. They are still who they were, and still who they are, and you're still a sinner. So how then can God declare us righteous by faith in Christ? Well, again, another example of something I think that we can all understand. If a wealthy individual adopts a child, we can say of that child, he is rich. Now, he may be underage, and until he comes to age, he may not have a single cent to his name. And yet, all of the wealth of his adoptive father is his, because he is a son. He is declared a son, and his wealth is his. And though formally it hasn't happened in reality, yes, he has that wealth now. And in Christ, do we not have all the wealth that we need now? Doesn't Paul declare elsewhere, we have in Christ everything pertaining to life and godliness now? That, that Christ will supply all of your needs now, that he has declared us his own now. We do not have to wait until that good old by and by. We are his. Again, there are many who would say, 
And we don't, this is coming later in Paul's response. But there are those who would take doctrines that we hold dear in Christianity, one being the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and say, legal fiction. There's no ether, there's no gas, there's nothing that the judge can give you in the courtroom that would make you righteous. And yet, the scriptures teach us that it is all of Christ and that we have all that we need now from him. One of the commentators writes, and at first it kind of jolted me a little bit, and this is a paraphrase of what he said, but he said, if this objection that Paul heard, this fact that doesn't free grace mean that you can keep on sinning, if it's something that you've never thought of, if it's never occurred to your mind and never kind of jolted your thinking, maybe you don't understand the gospel. In dealing with our sin, our moral sin, do Christians really want to continue in sin? Do we really want to have that license to sin and do as we wish? Do we really want, on the opposite side, to go to Jesus and have him deal with our sin? To me, this is the difference, all the difference. That my justification in Christ, yes, it is a legal pronouncement, but it changed me. It made me want to say, again, by his regeneration, and the gospel does say you must be born again. There's more to it than just the words. There is the power of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Both for the Jew and for the Gentile, of which I happen to be one. I'm a sinner. And yet, when God invaded my life, everything changed. I don't want to rebuild that life that I had without Christ. I don't want to rebuild that which he destroyed in me. Do Christians have temptations? Yeah, every day. And of course we do. But we are not yet fully sanctified in Christ. But do we find ourselves rebuilding that life that we once sought to destroy? That we once prayed that Christ would destroy? That we could be dead to sin? That we could reckon ourselves right before Christ and walk in newness of life? Do you find yourself trying to rebuild it? It is not Christ who leads you to sin. Christ is not a minister of sin. It is you. It is you who turn yourselves into transgressors. It is me who turns myself into a violator of the law if I seek to be justified either by the things I do or to give myself license to sin. If we find ourselves wanting to rebuild that which we once destroyed, it means perhaps that we never really went to Christ in the first place.
we can go. And an analogy that hit home to me because we've had the big C in our family, cancer. But if you had cancer and there was a doctor in Greenville who had the cure for your rare type of cancer and you went to see him and he explained the procedure and explained what would happen and told you that new life you would have cancer-free and we could perhaps use in this analogy your sin cancer cured and you walked out of that office and said nah I don't think I want to do that have you really understood the gospel you have the great physician you have the sin cancer curing doctor have you been to him and dealt with him and pleaded with him I need that cure I need to be free of this cancer of sin or have you decided to keep it there are many Christians who profess I believe in Christ who do not believe in Christ one particular commentator again said and again it's kind of shocking but it's he says ask this if you are living in a way that makes it look to those around you that Christ indeed promotes sin then it underscores the necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It shows us it is absolutely necessary because you can do nothing to cure your sin cancer. You can do nothing to cure your need to be right with God. So do Christians sin? Yes, we do. But Christians don't want to continue in their sin. They don't express a love for their sin yes we all sin we have things that uh, Romans 7 you know those things that Paul says I, I struggle with the things that I want to do I don't do the things that I don't want to do those I do yes we have those things but the overall writing thing I think that changes in our justification in Christ that 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 leaves the semantics and the and the arguments and the legal fiction out of it is Christ has changed us. He is not a promoter of sin. He is not that deacon of sin. But he gives me a desire that I want to change. I do not any longer wish to continue in my sin. And that is why I think Paul can say what he says. If I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself a transgressor of that very law, that very thing. Salvation by works, whatever those works may mean in Paul here, salvation by works promotes sin. Not Christ, but salvation by works. Because what does it do? It destroys grace. But salvation by grace promotes holiness but it destroys, because it destroys my desire for self-righteousness, for working myself to God by trying to perform in a way that God should take notice of me. By faith, we believe Christ saves us from our sins. 
By faith, we believe that Christ promotes righteousness. Don't reverse course. Don't rebuild what he has once destroyed. Don't rebuild what you have once destroyed. Trust him, and you will not be a transgressor of the law. Let us pray. Our Father, please help us to understand these things, to meditate upon them, to spin them over in our minds, to be able to understand, to, to question them, to seek more from your scriptures. But Father, we do thank you that in Christ you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Thank you that you have set us on a path of righteousness and holiness for your namesake, for your glory and honor. Build your church, Lord. Build your church that it may glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from Numbers chapter 6. Familiar words. But a great blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.